0: Welcome to the podcast. You are listening to First Impressions, a podcast by two Jane Austen fans, which is a safe space for us to discuss our love for Jane Austen and her novels. And we can give a big middle finger to all the haters who try to make us feel yes, thank you. who exactly. try to make us feel bad about liking Jane Austen. Uh, I'm Maggie and I am joined as always by my brilliant friend Kristen. Hello. Uh, she is the creator of this podcast. She's the one who has all the smart things to say. Um, not true. Uh, well, we'll see.
1: <laughs> you say that, but I know it's not true, that both of you are smart.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, that voice you're hearing is our special guest on today's episode, which we will get into in a little while. Uh, but let's just quickly recap where we are in our podcast. This is our third podcast about the novel, Emma. In our previous two podcasts, we talked about the characters uh, how it's Jane Austen's considered her masterpiece. And we talked about, in general, some of the themes that are prevalent in the book. Uh, so in this episode, we're doing things a little differently. We're joined by a very special guest. And I'll throw it over to Kristen to do an introduction. Oh, wow. Okay. So our very special guest is Arnie Perlstein, And Arnie is a dear personal friend of mine. Way back in the day, when I first got serious about learning more about Jane Austen, I joined the Austen L Listserv, which is hosted at McGill University, and I was immediately plunged into a world of academic discussion about Austen, and um, and I think the most interesting and unique voice on Austen L Listserv, in my opinion, is was Arnie Perlstein. He would send emails to the group that were so insightful and so well-researched, and also, so challenging that I was really drawn into his theories. And um, long story short, Arnie and I, ha! Arnie and I stuck, <laughs> struck up a friendship, and um, he introduced me to the concept of a shadow story, which is something that he's going to talk about at length today. Which is, it's an intriguing idea, an intriguing idea. So some of you will probably hear about the shadow stories and kind of roll your eyes and be like, "This is ridiculous," but I think there, if you can really dig into the text, there are some really interesting things to discover in the novels. Um, So before we get into that, though, Arnie, why don't we talk a little bit about your background and how you came to discover Jane Austen?
1: Okay, well, first of all, I want to express my great pleasure to be here talking to you and very excited about hoping that all kinds of interesting and unexpected things will happen for all of us in the course of the time we're speaking. Uh, well, I
0: hope so, too. It's always unexpected when we all get together.
1: <laughs> well, that should be a line from a Jane Austen novel, right? So, <laughs> uh, so anyway, how I came to Jane Austen actually was pretty late in the day for me. I'm now 63. Shut so, up. So in so in August, okay. I'm going to get to finally sing off-key when I'm 64. Okay, but well, any, you look
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. so, If you're watching uh, the YouTube hangouts of this, you know that Arnie looks great.
1: <laughs> keep talking. A- anyway... Uh, my When I got married for the last time, uh, in 1995, my, my wife, uh, we'll let that pass what that means, but when I married my wife, Jackie, which was uh, 21 years ago, uh, uh, one of the first things that we did together is that she took me to see the Emma Thompson Sense and Sensibility. And at that moment, I was 42 years old, had no prior acquaintance with Jane Austen whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I might have been able to identify Pride and Prejudice as a title, and maybe knew that she was the author, but I knew nothing about her. Had never read it. Uh, I was not an English major in college. In fact, I uh, avoided reading uh, fiction for many years when I was an adult and raising a family whatever. I just got caught up in other things and uh, just never got back to my teenage love of of literature. And so uh, when we went to see uh, Sense and Sensibility, my wife, who had been an English minor and is also a psychologist and a brilliant, brilliant person, Uh, We came out of the movie theater and she said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, it's a great movie and a great story, which is hardly a a shocker to to (laughs) say that about the Emma Thompson Angley uh, version. Uh, I said, but the only thing that bothered me a little was there's this kind of obsession with how people speak, you know, this sort of focus on saying it the right way and being a gentleman. I I found that a little irritating. Well, of course, in hindsight, I now say to my wife, well, you had a project here. Because you didn't like the fact that I would tend to speak without reflection beforehand, and maybe I wasn't saying things in quite the the most uh, genteel way. Uh, oh, I
0: could definitely relate to that criticism. <laughs> speaking without reflection—that no, is, is not something that I am not familiar. With. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so you uh, saw the film, and then did you decide to dig into the books at that point? Well,
1: the next step was what I think was a real common portal for many people who are now Janeites, which is that like a year later came out the uh, Andrew Davis, uh, Pride and Prejudice. You know, mm-hmm. the one with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ailey, which is the Pride and Prejudice. The Pride uh, and Prejudice. And, and, mean, even, even though the BBC is good, the, the, the old BBC is good, but it's much stiffer and less formal. And I, and I can't get on board with the Kira Knightley- uh, Oh,
0: at some point, yeah. at some point, we have to have a discussion, not in this episode, about Kristen's loathing oh my God. for that movie, especially where? Donald Sutherland. Yes, oh. she hates Donald Sutherland. Crazy. I mean, I don't like him for other reasons having to do with Buffy the Vampire yes. Slayer. Yes, yes. Um, but we will we will revisit this topic. It's some... fair enough. <laughs> sidebar, <laughs> super fast sidebar. We were at in the UK at Chawton Cottage where Austin lives. There was a man there who was like an interpreter, right? Mm-hmm. He asked me, did you see that 2005, you know, Pride and Prejudice? And I said, yes. He goes, what'd you think? And I go, I hated it. And he goes, well, I was an advisor on that movie. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. There was this amazing awkward moment.
1: <laughs> well, he, des- he deserved it. He should get a lot of awkward moments. So uh, anyway, that's when, I, when we watched that on TV along with how many million other viewers, that's when I got the impulse to read Jane Austen. So I, I can't remember exactly, but I know it was very shortly after that that I actually picked up a copy somewhere and started reading it, and was really taken with it. And then over the course of a couple of years, I read uh, *Sense and Sensibility* because I had seen the movie, and uh, *Read Emma*. Found Emma very opaque, very hard to get into, but I had already seen the Gwyneth Paltrow and the. Kate Beckinsale versions by then, so I knew the story, but the, the novel disappointed me because I felt sort of disconnected from what was happening. Uh, and I tried Mansfield Park and didn't really enjoy it. And I never even read Northanger Abbey uh, at that point. And what am I leaving out? I think, oh, Persuasion. Oh, and I we saw the wonderful Persuasion uh, with Amanda Root and uh, whatever his name is. Uh, yeah, Sharon Hines. And so... The key point, though, that changed everything for me with Jane Austen is when I, one day I decided, because I was one of the early adopters in the late 90s, of talking with people online about uh, anything, you know, I joined various online discussion groups. So one day in like 2000, I said, gee, there must be a group to talk about Jane Austen with. And it happened, of course, because of the Colin Firth, uh, Jennifer Ehle version There were a zillion people wanting to talk about Jane Austen a couple of years later. And so when I entered the Janeites group, which I'm still a member of, which is the alternative in English language to the L group, there were like 50 people actively talking and like hundreds of others lurking behind and occasionally. So it was a a mob scene, a virtual mob scene. And what was remarkable is that we were doing, uh, it was all so fresh and nobody had really spent a lot of time talking to each other for more than a year or two. So we do these group reads. And what happened is one day uh, I started to participate in them, and I was amazed at how stimulating it was to my imagination to argue about Jane Austen with other people. I don't know if you've had that
0: experience. What I love about your story is I think that a lot of people in this country can relate to that. Because my first discovered Austen, we talked about this in our first episode a bit, was also with the 1995 Uh, miniseries, I remember watching it with my mom and I had never, I was 15 I had never read Jane Austen Uh, maybe we hadn't gotten to her in school yet, I don't know, but that was how I discovered it too, and I don't think your story is that unusual uh, Mm -hmm. for people, it seems to be like that and I just finished reading actually part of um, a book that we talked about, Jane Austen in Hollywood which talks about the huge influx of interest in her work in the 1990s when all of these film adaptations were coming out
1: you know what, the one that really started it, and I didn't see it at the time, but I saw it later, was Clueless. Clueless yes, was the yes. earliest of the wave, and it right. actually ignited something that right. caused the others to be made, I think.
0: Because people were saying, oh, this is, re- oh, you know, it's based on the novel Emma. <laughs> like, oh, really? I don't really think I've heard of that. And then it just kind of spiraled from there. As much what about- as I like to think about the books as so easy to pick up and read because they are for me, I do sometimes have to stop and reflect that they were written over 200 years ago, and a lot of people need an interpreter. Mm-hmm. They need that first movie to interpret it for them and to show them. And, and then once they pick up the book, they're willing to deal with the opaque language as you described it, I think. Yeah, I think this is something that we have touched on too about how we'll say to a modern reader, this might seem strange, or sometimes the language can be a bit inaccessible for someone who's used to a more modern novel. But I, I think we all kind of have similar stories. Yeah, yeah. But Arnie, <laughs> because um, I'm an obsessive once you, personality. Once you found, once you found the Jane Austen community, um, so then why don't you uh, tell us about um, shadow stories? Yes. Well, so, yeah. Define a shadow story for us.
1: Okay. A shadow story. The best example I can give is think of the thing we've all seen. There are these figure ground images that you see, you know, in books or online, where it looks like a a vase, and then if you look at it again, you see its two faces facing each other, and it seems like these two images go back and forth in your brain, and you don't see both at the same time. You either see one or the other, and which one you see first, I don't know if they've ever studied to see which yeah. one is more likely. But there are different versions of it. Well, now imagine that a writer could be a writer of a novel could be so creative as to find a way in a novel to do something analogous to what that uh, painter or that image creator, visual image creator, did with that thing. And there's also a famous painting going back to the Renaissance by Holbein called The Ambassadors. Uh, which if you can look it up online, the ambassador is by Hoban, You've got these two people standing there in medieval garb, and then under the beneath their feet, there's like this blurry image of something oh, gray yeah, and I know up. what you're
0: talking about. We we studied this in my um high school AP European. This is the, the skull. Is that what you're talking about? Yep, yep. If you like turn yep. your head a yeah, certain no, you way. have to be
1: standing to the yeah. to the left of the picture at a certain yeah. moment, you're you're you see the skull exactly as it was originally. Uh, existing. Uh, well, imagine someone does that in a novel. How do you do that? Well, I'm giving all this to you from the, the back end of the telescope because I figured all this out over a period of years, which I'm now telling you as though I, I knew it all along. No, I didn't. What happened is I saw my first pieces of these uh, alternative ways of reading pieces of the novel bit by bit. Like the first one I saw, which I, I've told a thousand times, is in the scene early in Sense and Sensibility when Marianne goes out with her sister to run in the rain and she falls down and twists her ankle on the hill and then Willoughby swoops in and rescues her and romance ensues, blah, blah, blah. This was like my third or fourth reading of Sense and Sensibility in a group read on uh, J-Nights and suddenly the idea pops into my head, he was stalking her,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: which is a weird thing to think. And-
0: Do you think it's fair to say that a lot of the things that readers- in uh, in one of the novels would say what a coincidence you know what a coincidence that Willoughby happened to be on the hill at the same time what a coincidence that um frank churchill's aunt dies at this convenient time um so many of the things that we as readers initially would interpret as a fortunate co- a lucky coincidence you interpret as uh, is an evidence of the shadow plot something else is happening to create that circumstance well
1: let me give you a quick aside there the biggest coincidence i'm aware of in all of jane austen is actually the one in the in her most popular and most famous novel which is pride and prejudice why is it which is never explained or even mentioned by the narrator or noticed by elizabeth who is in my opinion utterly clueless when you look at her from a certain perspective she's more clueless than emma uh She has, it never occurs to her. It's weird that Wickham, Darcy, Mr. Collins, uh, Gardner, they're all connected. And there's this country town, Meryton. Yeah,
0: they all have
1: one family at Longbourn. All of a sudden, all these people converge on her like with like, like, like five metal filings to a magnet. Mm Why? You you can either say that Jane Austen was, in a way, was expedient, that she wanted to create a story that would, that would. Play out like dominoes falling at the end, which is exactly what happens. That's what's so amazing about the denouement of the plot is it goes bang, 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 and one thing triggers another in this amazing cascade in a few chapters. It could only happen because of all these dense connections that existed before the story began. But she never tells you that this happened She never explains it. Now you can either take that as which is what most Janeites do when I've ever raised this, they say, oh. She had to do it. It was convenient. Yeah. Oh,
0: so this is like, well, why did that? Why does this have to happen? And then, you know, when we talk about the, uh, what we talked about one of our episodes before, you were talking about the angry Jezebel commenters so <laughs> saying yeah. the uh, the writing monkeys who just type out. Well, why did that happen? Because it had to happen for the plot. Um, and you you could make that a criticism, I think, yeah, of Jane Austen's novels. Too. I always rationalize coincidences, the plot, the coincidence. I, I mean, life is strange. I always rationalize that by thinking that the the first of all the population of of britain was smaller the um, the number of people who were actually rich enough to be in the sphere of what mm-hmm. we're talking about were much it was like a high school everybody it was a high school, everybody. it was a smaller world and so that's the way i rationalized but it. what if
1: you, you realize that's ridiculous yeah, that, that I if I you actually it, calculate it, the odds it's like one in, in, a, in a million that oh, all four know. of them a quadruple coincidence is, is like 16 times as unlikely as a single coincidence
0: but this is why I find the idea of shadow stories um, fascinating from you, because we're a, a cr- you could have a criticism of Austen, well, it's a cheap out. It, uh, like in Northanger Abbey, when um, his sister, like the man she's it's in London, right. he like, suddenly inherits. Yeah, and now yeah, she can yeah. marry him, and isn't yeah. that great? Isn't it great? Um, so these things that you could level as criticisms, as well as a deus ex machina, like it had to happen, you attribute to Austen's genius in creating yeah. these shadow stories. She's so she's having her cake.
1: are full she's having her cake and eating it too because in order to with Holbein all he had to do to create that ambiguous skull was to sort of set up a mirror somewhere and then the paint while he's looking in the mirror and that's how we know that's how he yeah. did it
0: I think uh, it looks like an ore in the painting too uh they had it up on his phone um I actually yeah. have a print of that at home because I love that painting so it, much because
1: it's really dramatic right. uh, but so my premise now I think we've had enough of a banter to, to get to the heart of what I say a shadow story is There's never enough is,
0: banter <laughs> that
1: each novel not just Emma not just mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice that we've been talking about but each of the six novels is a, is anamorphic it has two versions of the story one of them which I have called the overt story for obvious reasons because it's overt it's what the text sort of leads you to naturally read when you're not asking these suspicious questions when you're not reading against the grain when you're reading with the flow which of course with an incredible writer like Jane Austen what pleasure there is in reading with the flow and being swept up in her words and her genius and her ideas and just going where it seems to be taking you that's why this is what everybody has seen for 200 years is a version of the story that goes this way but I learned, I think, via the, the good luck of living in the modern era when we had computers, when we had internet discussion groups, when we had movies—all this sort of convergence of of, of tools, sort of—and then me, who was an obsessive crossword puzzle kind of person. If you ever, did you see the movie *The Imitation Game*? I, yes. I, just, I actually just saw it. Did you see it, Kristen?
0: No, I didn't.
1: I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's about A- Alan Turing, the uh, the, the guy oh, right, who. Right, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Notice how they, and actually I, I checked on this, and there's some historical validity to, not, maybe not he, but the people who ran that program, they 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 found code breakers were people who were really fast at doing crossword puzzles. Right. And and the British cryptic crossword puzzles are harder than ours, or at least they're harder to me than the New York Times puzzle, which I've, I've been doing for decades. But uh, so, and I think there is something to that as to why I'm the person who finally had this crazy idea about Willoughby stalking Marianne and then, other things of this kind and the coincidences and everything because crossword puzzles train you to think suspiciously because a really good crossword puzzle by Will Shorts and his collaborators there's an obvious answer and then but that won't work in the the Saturday and the Friday and the Thursday puzzle it works in the Monday puzzle perfectly you can do the Monday puzzle just taking what is there on the surface but you can't solve the hard puzzles unless you can step outside the normal frame of reference and look at it from the side it's and all about so, the
0: word play, which if you've seen that movie, is also fantastic. I have, and I was
1: at the uh, crossword puzzle tournament after that. I oh, went cool. for
0: fun. It was amazing.
1: It was really fun. I got to talk to like the people who won and everything, these, these 21-year-old guys who can do the puzzle in two minutes that I think I'm a hero because I can do it in 12 minutes, and the ordinary person can't do it.
0: Yeah, I but, can't you do it. Know,
1: you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like the, I, I just was fascinated on how they could develop this facility at such a young age to do this. But anyway... Uh, that's why it was me. It's not that I am some kind of phenomenal genius. I'm just a smart person who loves to solve puzzles, and I came at the right place in the right time. Plus, I had about 20,000 hours over the last 12 years to spend time doing this, because you can't see the big picture that I am going to lay out for you in the remainder of this talk, unless you spend an enormous amount of time looking at all of her novels and all the biography and all the scholarly literature, and I've researched everything. Because you get a piece of the puzzle, of the jigsaw puzzle, from every direction. And I've been collecting them for fifteen, you know, 13 years.
0: So, oh, Kristen, you want to say something? Oh, this is, I was going to say, this is a good time to pivot and to start talking about the particular shadow story yes. of Emma. Yes. So you mentioned that the overt story is the objective story. And one of the things I also like about your theory is that the shadow story comes when we view it from recognizing that the books are told from a subjective point of view most of them um from for example in emma it's mostly emma's point of view and the thing that i like about this is that i love books that have unreliable narrators uh gone girl is a good example of that you know classic you think it's going one way and then all of a sudden you realize the narrator's been lying the whole time or doesn't know what's going on
1: exactly Um,
0: and so your theory is that Emma is very unreliable as a narrator.
1: But I want to emphasize, it's all six of the novels, and it's not just mostly, it's like 99% by, by percentages. It's like in every novel, there's a couple of scenes and just pieces of scenes, not whole chapters even, but pieces where for a brief window, you're in Knightley's mind near the end of Emma or you're in Darcy's mind for couple of paragraphs mm-hmm. or something like that and and every novel and you're in Charles lucas's mind and pride and preface for a little bit here and there and these are clearly things that are being reported to you that that the heroine couldn't know but everything else all the other scenes the 99% of, of what you're reading has narrative that can either be read as as you've been correctly uh, responding uh, can either be read as an, a pretty objective honest and complete uh, narrative description of what's going on so that by the time you're done reading each of these scenes you, you you don't believe you've been had something left out or they can be so heavily colored and influenced by the thinking of the heroine even though it's not written in a first person thing it's third person but it's like first person and if you read it that way then everything's up for grabs as to whether the person who seems to be happy or sad or angry or deceitful really is or it's just the heroine thinks here she
0: is. So what do you think is the main, because I know there are multiple things going on. Um, yeah. So what is the main shadow story of Emma?
1: Okay, you mentioned Trottenhouse. I've given this talk at Chautenhaus in 2009 and also at Oxford in 2007. I was fortunate to find an Oxford professor with a very open mind who was willing to entertain my, give me a forum uh, before I had even fully flesh out my ideas anywhere close to where they are now. Uh, but it was really wonderful to get that kind of personal feedback and to and to be there. So what I've said in my Emma talk, which is the one I've given more than any about any other novel, is that the shadow heroine is Jane Fairfax. She is the person around whom everything in the shadow story is all the bees are buzzing around her. In the overt story, Emma, the ultimate 21-year-old rich, Narcissist, everything rotates around her, so she's reading now. In the objective story, it does rotate around her, she's not crazy. Everybody is oriented to her more or less, the way we find out, with her mistakes that are revealed. But basically, at the end of the novel, she has a pretty good idea of what has happened. In the shadow story, where Jane, remember, Jane barely says 10 lines in the yeah. whole.
0: I don't feel well. I think I'm going to just walk home. <laughs> right.
1: Only in the chapter where they talk about, they have the discussion about the post office does she say a lot of stuff. Other than that- or she's
0: basically saying like, no, I want to go check my mail.
1: <laughs> right. Leave me the hell alone. Yeah. Can I please
0: just my... go check my own mail? Is that right. okay?
1: <laughs> but aside from that scene, she has minimal dialogue. And, and yet at the same time, the novel is constantly, because Emma is obsessed with Jane, so are we. Mm-hmm. we're We're sitting, we're like little little creatures sitting on Emma's shoulder saying, yeah, I want to know too, what's this, what's this, and whatever, and while it's hard for us to go back to the moment when we first read Emma, and I actually saw the movie before I read the novel, so I didn't have the chance to sort of have a completely fresh approach to the novel to see what I would have seen, uh, but everybody basically comes away being as as curious about Jane as possible, and yet at the end, we get this sudden revelation that she's been involved with Frank all along, and then somehow that's the end of the novel.
0: And let me interject here, too, yeah. not to get ahead of ourselves, but um, the the way that um, I got into this shadow, I was educated about this shadow story, is I wrote to Arnie, and I I asked him, why Jane? As you know, the, the author's name is Jane Austen. To be an author and name a character with your own first name, and she does it also with Jane Bennett, but I don't want to get away from ourselves, so... Right. Um, but that, but and they all they fetishize the name of Jane Fairfax. If you've read Emma, it's like it's Veronica Mars. Jane, yes, it's like Veronica Mars. Jane oh, Fairfax. Veronica Jane, Mars. Fairfax. Oh, Jane Jane Fairfax. 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 It's not Miss Fairfax. So common. Um, so often it's Jane Fairfax. That it's that to the point where it sometimes gets on my nerves. And I think <laughs> she meant it to obtrude yes. under notice. Blah, blah. It's not just the repetition. It's not just the how much she comes up. It's also the repetition of her first and last name. Uh,
1: Kristen has has. Uh you know, had a good instinct to get upon this thing about uh, Jane Austen's methodology. You've just hit on something. What I find, what I have found a thousand times scattered over the six novels is that she will emphasize things. Sometimes, you know, seemingly without meaning like this one, in other ways, uh, she will constantly emphasize words or key, what I call them keywords or names or things like that in ways that seem overdone or to the point of being irritating. This is her way of drawing your subconscious attention to these details to make you at a certain point do what Kristen did, which is to say, What's up with that? What does this mean? That is the you've opened the door into the shadow story. The minute you did that, you had the potential.
0: Oh, you opened the door, there. you found it. <laughs> you,
1: you didn't know there was a door there. No, but you did know because it bothered you enough to ask me. So it was on your mind. But you see, there's a myth of Jane Austen that has been perpetuated. Perpetrated, I don't want to say, and perpetuated. Uh, that is goes back to to the moment she was, you know, laid beneath Winchester Cathedral, where her family and then other uh, people commenting about her have been presenting this image of her. That is a global uh, picture. It's not just one characteristic. It's that she's a pious Anglican. It's that she's humble. It's that she would never have sex. In, in, talk about sex. It's that she had no aspirations to be famous i mean i could go on and on but there's all this bs about no, her really that has been that... hardwired into the into the psyche of so why would I or you or anybody else who comes to Jane Austen, if we read biographies, if we read critical literature, this myth is is perpetu- perpetuated on a daily basis. It's go to Twitter, you find it on a, on a minute by minute basis.
0: I wonder it, how much of that, her like piety and not talking about sex and stuff like that is because she was a woman of that time. Because when I read her books, I certainly don't think that anyone who is capable of such amazing insight into the human character i agree with you i think that's ridiculous It's and, ridiculous. um i think it has it, the only thing i can think of is because she's a woman right yeah mm-hmm. because she was a female a female author at that time especially she's so restra- right i mean she even published sense and sensibility under the author name a lady right because she even that was like almost too right. much and that was that you know it's so okay to go that way. she was
1: work she was like uh i did i read it a long time ago and i don't remember it but the 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 novel by Nafisi about reading Lolita in Tehran. Where she, mm-hmm. have you read that or heard about it? And she talks about reading Pride and Prejudice with her a little secret group while they're doing this. She was Jane Austen was living in a country like that two hundred years ago. Women were, in a, especially a smart woman with a big mouth and and brilliant who was smarter than everyone else in the room. Uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, you know, you know. Look at look at the be it the stuff that's happening with Hillary. Uh, because she's a woman, and you, you as woman, women can tell that there, you know that men don't really get. That she doesn't get a certain level of respect because she's a woman, right? Yeah, and well that's kind man, of the point of our podcast. podcast. Yeah, that's too. the entire
0: point of our yeah, podcast. that we're just sick of people. She's a female writer, so she must write frivolous things about like just romance novels. And I mean, that's the whole you mission statement. You wouldn't the believe podcast. the things that people have said to me. But but she right?
1: made but Jane Austen partly created this because in a way she's like but she had to, right? She, she had to, to but she also up. was trying to teach us this. I, I, I get in often get into her didactic motivation that I perceive, which is that why would a writer, aside from the fact that it's really fun as an artistic aesthetic thing to create a double story, she also wanted to create the ambiguity that we all face in our daily life. When you walk around, even right now, you don't know me, you don't know what really motivates me. What makes me tick?
0: Oh, I know you, you Arnie. Know <laughs> I hope.
1: I hope you don't know me. I hope you're <laughs> wagging your finger. <laughs>
0: right, you like
1: Bernie be, Sanders and, wagging your finger. To interrupt,
0: but we have to think of our, our we have to think of our listeners here because here. I was being a little unfair because I already know the shadow story. and You were starting to talk about when. Oh it yeah, is. we totally got off track. Okay. Yeah, okay. and I, we'll get, I we'll let me just part. say, can I just say one more thing? Yes. yes, is I love what you were saying about her being um, so clever and having a big mouth because I just think. If we could go out with Jane Austen now, like go to a bar with her, it would she would be so fun, right? I'll she be would be so fun to hang out with. She would be just imagine a, a contemporary
1: figure, I'm trying to think like Sarah Silverman or yes. uh, wow. or, 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 <laughs> or Amy Schumer or someone like that, but she would be much better than they are.
0: She, she was she you could almost I figured like she was almost born 200 years too early, right? Or, or
1: you could say that it took 200 years for these secret messages that she planted in everybody's minds to finally sprout. And I right. think that's not a crazy thing to say.
0: Okay, so back on topic. Yeah. Speaking Emma, of, speaking of secret messages, please, yes. okay, Jane Fairfax is the sun, and everyone else actually revolves around only emma's
1: emma's too clueless to know that emma's
0: earth and thinks that the sun revolves around her
1: (laughs) now now i'm going to leave you on a on a little bit of a garden path here to see what you can and you may know some of this already from reading some of my stuff or about me but whatever but play along
0: okay and people it's not going to be hard
1: (laughs) come on So what could be a reason Uh, Jane shows up at the very beginning of the second, I was going to say trimester, the second uh, book, the the novel came out in three volumes originally, which were 18, 18, and 19 chapters, almost exactly, um, what's the word? Symmetrical. Uh, Jane shows up at the beginning of chapter 19. Actually, she doesn't show up. We start hearing about her. So what could be a reason why... This young woman who, remember Jane's history, she's been living in London for a number of years. She was, at some age, we're not sure exactly how old she was, I think it may have been eight, I'm not sure if we're even told, she's sent to live, because she's an orphan, she's sent to live with this kindly uh, soldier friend of her deceased father, uh, Colonel Campbell, who who keeps her in high style in London, where she lives in his home, with, and is best friends with her their daughter, uh, young uh, Miss Cam- Miss Campbell, right? Uh, and uh, for some reason, she suddenly she she writes a letter to her aunt, Miss Bates, and then suddenly there is Jane showing up in town, uh, and she's not well physically, right? She's a little bit under the weather. She's uh, sickly she's sickly so. or that's what emma thinks that she's she has sickly.
0: a low constitution modifier
1: and then she proceeds to sort of be very mysterious and hanging out uh, away from emma 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 wants to ask her a lot of nosy questions she's ducking all the questions very artfully better than any politician could in the race today when they don't want to talk about something and so it's getting emma more and more in a frenzy to figure out what's going on then frank sort of becomes like uh, you know milton satan whispering in emma's mm, ear like those Maybe it's that, it's all this different stuff. Now, my question to you is what could be a reason why such a, a young woman who's a single woman would appear in the town of her birth uh, and then hide out for what turns out to be six months and then suddenly in the end gets married to this guy and what could be a reason if you were very suspicious for why she could be feeling really bad about three months into her uh, the, the story of the novel, the, the timeline?
0: Okay, let's see. Kristen, what is a reason why a single woman in a certain time period would leave her home for a period of about six months to stay with distant relatives and be sick all the time? Because she has got a bun in the... She up. got knocked up! <laughs> you got
1: it! You got it! Which is, by the way, why Miss Bates talks a lot about baking. What is it she talks about baking? It's like you bake the thing three times over. Her One of her oh, ridiculous... Okay, yeah. <laughs> baking the apples. There's your butt in the oven right there. So Miss
0: Bates knows, right? Of course Miss Bates okay. knows.
1: That's She's her protecting mom. her. Does She's protecting. Uh who knows? But it probably. He talk about We here. have
0: to ask about the belly, though. I mean, I know there's that show we you know. Well, they know. have those high empire you're
1: getting ahead because you have to see that the novel is exactly corresponding with the three trimesters of her pregnancy. Of her oh. pregnancy. Oh. It's Exactly oh. corresponding. You know, you know, the, the, at the end of chapter thirty-six, she's six months in. All right. So now the next question you should be asking, because let's get let's get right to it. If she's pregnant. What happens? Because obviously, if she's pregnant, something must happen. We never read about her having a baby in the novel. How could she be pregnant? Now, use your put oh, on the little. she
0: have a miscarriage? I'd be sad. She it
1: did. could be, and it, and and for that's not actually what I thought at first, but it that's a possibility that I ruled out, and the reason I ruled it out is because there's something else that happens in the novel at oh, just the Mrs. right time. Oh, Mrs. Weston. What right. happens
0: with Mrs. Weston? Mrs. Weston is all of a sudden preggers, right? Yeah. Oh, snap. I know where this is going. <laughs> at, at, at okay. So months, Jane, so, Jane is pregnant. so Mrs. Weston, so Mrs. Weston has to be in on it, right? She, at
1: some point she becomes in on right. right. it. So think she's it's from like, what are we yeah. going to do
0: with this kid? It would ruin you if, if you're going to have this baby here. People would still find out about it. I'm married. I'll say that I'm pregnant. Miss, like all of a sudden hey i've been seven months pregnant nobody knew right because don't so, forget mrs weston was emma's governess she was like 18 or 20 years old when emma was like a child yeah so she's older she is older which, which is not to story. say just because you're older you can't have kids yeah, like, That is I'm not that that true. That. Because if, we, if that's the truth words, i'm screwed it is less i mean if yeah. she was, <laughs> remember if she was isabella emma's older sister's governess then she was you know 20 when it's was. Born. Right, and so she gets married, and kid. she gets
1: married on a dime. Remember, one there's one at the beginning of the novel. It's like all of a sudden, mysteriously, and again, just like the thing with the name Jane being an emphasis, there's this big focus on how they get married, and Emma oh, well, and, poor and, Taylor. and ostensibly it's because Emma takes pride in her matchmaking abilities, and then Knightley says it was a lucky guess. Knightley knows that it's no lucky guess at all because he also knows what's going on from the beginning, too.
0: Oh, okay. Well, before we get into that, so basically (laughs) Mrs. Weston knows what's going on. She knows it would ruin Jane Fairfax. That's why she
1: marries Mr. At that moment.
0: So Miss Taylor, before she was Mrs. Weston, knows that Jane Fairfax is pregnant. So she marries Mr. Weston, so then she can pretend it's her baby.
1: Right, even though that's that's plan B, though. Plan A... Is something else.
0: Well, Plan B, go to the pharmacy. Not no, that no, plan no, that no, no. Was... There,
1: there was no Plan C at that time. So Plan B is sort of, if nothing else works, we'll she'll slip the baby to Mrs. Weston on the sly. Okay. But the how would
0: Miss Taylor know? Would Miss Bates have told her?
1: They're, they're part of this female network. You see, Jane right, Austen. Well, yeah, right.
0: Jane Fairfax spent like basically part of every year in Highbury, just, so yeah. everybody knew. Okay, sorry. They're,
1: I forgot they're, that they're also there's also a pre story to Emma. There, there is a, you know, Mr. Woodhouse's first name is Henry. This is
0: delicious. Yes, 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 Henry. Okay, we know that Kristen loves the Austin heroes that are named Henry. Well, and I forgot to mention that I've, I've been saying all throughout the podcast, oh, Henry's are so charming because not one of Jane Austen's brothers. Yes, that was a charming brother. And then I read, then I read, reread Emma and I'm like, wait, his name is Henry. And I was like, that doesn't fit. So, Arnie, tell us how it fits.
1: Because think about a historical Kristen, Jane Austen. Jane Austen had a had a encyclo, in my opinion an encyclopedic knowledge of history English history going you know she wrote when she was 16 years old she wrote a parodic uh, history of England I'm sure you know about that yes. uh, including in which there is a charade that she writes about James the first. Having a male lover, his, who is his pet. And, pet. and Jane Austen is 16 years old and talking you go, about girl. look at her. She awesome. would
0: have she knew all about sex. Jane Austen would whoa, okay. Jane Austen I mean, would have totally been a slash fanfic writer. Oh, ma- she's she so ma- ma- bad, Mary, right? Mary, Harry
1: her, and Draco. Oh, all, all of her novels are slash fiction. That's another whole thing here. They're okay. they're all slash fiction. Except There's like the Pride day in life. Pride.
0: His gay it's gay and good. lesbian characters. Oh, it's like William and Darcy. Or, no, it's Bingley. He's, Arnie's going to say Bingley and Darcy every time he says You know, every time he says that, I shut him down. Because I have open mind only so far. Anyway. Well, well what
1: about Charlotte and Elizabeth?
0: Oh, damn. This is how I feel about the Harry-Hermione shippers, though. Where I'm like, there's really no canon support for that. But the thing with Arnie's theories is that he can point to specific...
1: I, I have a whole, but that's, it's another, it's another topic for another discussion, but there's, right. there is slash material in every single one of the novels, because I think Jane Austen was bisexual is my conclusion. Oh, is wow. That, 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 cool. that part of it, part of the shadow story is that it's also a gay and lesbian shadow story.
0: Okay. Well, let's get back, back to, let's get okay. back to our the name. actual shadow story. Right. Okay. So Jane Fairfax is pregnant. She comes to Highbury to, so that she won't be disgraced.
1: And, and she has uh, to go through the pregnancy, but there's yeah. also Plan A. I say is that she wants to find a husband,
0: right? So Frank Churchill husband, is not the father in no. this. Oh, well,
1: that's okay. brilliant that you said that because
0: everybody thinks it must be Frank. And at Frank, first, well, if she's it, crying. It would be Frank, right? Because they will see. How Frank. Your damn mind when you figure out who the father is when Artie tells you the father is it, Mr. What? Dixon? No, it's no. not it, Mr. Mis- Dixon. It, it, no.
1: It's Mr. Dixon in quotes because one of the things about uh, what Jane Austen does is that Emma is always almost right. She's almost right, and then people talk her out of, in the shadow story, they talk her out of it. So she thinks it's Mr. Dixon and whatever. So who is a married man who is unhappily married, uh, who uh, you know has known her from childhood, who is in proximity to her because she lives in London. So this man is a married man living in London Unhappily married. Who am I talking about?
0: Okay, I know who you're going to say because I read your <laughs> blog. But, okay, you're, you're talking about Mr. Knightley's brother, yes, Mr. John God. Knightley. But That's right. is he unhappily married? Yes, he that is was not my. She's well, I guess
1: idi- He's an idiot. He's married to a moron and he's a brilliant. He's a bit of an asshole, but yeah. he's he's a very smart guy. Well, this he's is a married, to an idiot. This is
0: a very common theme in Austin, too. Is that smart men Mr.
1: Bennett and Mrs. Bennett, right? Idiots.
0: The Palmers, right? Mm-hmm. In yeah. sense of sensibility. Mm-hmm. Smart men marry idiots because pretty, they're pretty
1: idiots, right? Yeah. Yeah. No matter what, what you mom, say, Emma,
0: trip. men do not want <laughs> silly <laughs> wives.
1: She's always giving those kind of winks. That kind of line, and it's and it's it's a it's a striking part of her technique is that the most memorable lines are the most significant lines in the shadow story. In she ways, you also
0: seen that a lot in her everyday life, though, right? Where I mean, and to be fair, women back then uh, there was not a priority on educating women. Oh, it was the um, opposite. If a, right, a the priority was, was: can you uh, embroider, make it a sil- silks? Yeah, you know, like so. A, I, mean, you know, I don't want to make a cover it that screens. like. It is not the fault of these <laughs> ladies. But that is definitely a theme in her novels, I think. So your theory is that Mr. John Knightley um, is the father of Jane Fairfax's child.
1: Exactly, and that's undoable. And and that's why if you read the the, the discussion that she has with him in chapter 34, that's why that's the moment when she's doing a lot of talking, because he's there. That was part of what made me realize that, is that that whole conversation about letters, delivering letters, Delivery. What what is delivery? This is wordplay. This is the delivery of a special delivery letter. This is, they're talking about her pregnancy. Everybody knows that the topic except. So uh, now, uh,
0: John Knightley and Jane Fairfax, and they're talking about delivery. So let okay, me good. let me just say though right now that this is. I. I see support for everything you've said until then. This is when I'm starting to become a doubter. And I've, obviously I say that with great respect because I think that you're brilliant. Um, this is the part where I start to think, mm. so convince me.
1: Well, part of the way, I can't convince you in the time frame we have, but what I'm saying to you in all seriousness is go back and read chapter 34. Okay. Really carefully, about 10 times. Just read it, read it, wake, go to sleep, wake up, read it again you'll begin to see some of the puns and the winks that are going on there because these things emerge. It's sort of like a photographic negative that develops and you have a picture sort of comes in. That's what's happening in your brain with these shadows. That's That's how I do crossword puzzles. You know, I look at the clues, they don't make any sense. I can't think of anything. By the time I'm done doing the puzzle, and because I do it a lot, it happens in 15 minutes. I'm I was like, Arnie, this
0: happens to you in 12 minutes. Like, this is not, <laughs> like, go to sleep, sleep well. Like, you make these connections in 12 minutes. I don't know if my brain can do that. But, but I've been practicing.
1: can, because you have, just like, you might be someone who says, I can't do crossword puzzles. Well, it's
0: flexing I, a muscle, right? I, mean, more if you if do.
1: I got my wife, who is brilliant. She couldn't do a Monday puzzle if her life depended on it. She couldn't even do a U.S. Today puzzle when she started about 10 years ago. Oh, she
0: couldn't even do to USA rules. Today. Now, now,
1: now, now she does the hard New York Times puzzles because she stuck with it. And then she tells me, she's a psychologist, she tells me she feels that this has sort of spread through her own creativity in her practice as a psychologist, that she sees things more clearly and more quickly. This is a, Jane Austen understood this, this process of trying to develop her readers' minds. If she could get readers to reread her novels, and we reread her novels because they're so amazing. So even if you don't know these shadows, you reread her novels because they're so much fun and they're so romantic and they're so smart. If you keep rereading them, then eventually these things pop up. That's why it popped up for me on the fourth reading of Sense and Sensibility. And then it took me three years to realize that this was going on all over the place in her novels. It's It's a gradual process. So why would I convince you in 15 minutes? You have to as an article of, of suspending disbelief, you have to say he may be right, and the only way I'm going to know is if I give it a chance. If you don't give it a chance, you know, it won't happen for you.
0: When I think about this, I think about those um, pictures in the 90s that were really popular where it just looked oh, like yeah, a Oh, yeah, the mole Oh, my God. But I had one of those. <laughs> but Arnie, talk, Actually, about, this, like talk about the crying. Who's crying? Jane. And Miss Jane in Fairfax. John Knightley is there and and they're trying not to.
1: Because he's saying I'm not gonna marry you. He's basically saying, uh, uh, he says, I hope you have many more, whatever it is. I forget the, the euphemism he uses. Uh, but, uh,
0: yeah, no, no, no. So the conversation is about concentrated objects of affection.
1: That's so- a baby. That's a baby. <laughs>
0: Well, she's a conversation about she loves the mail because she's getting mail from people that she loves, you know, the Campbells. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about, oh, my objects of affection, you know, that my family and everything, they're scattered. And, uh, you know, so they're in Ireland at this point. Yes, the Campbells are in Ireland with with Mr. Dixon. Anyway, so what she's saying is, John Knightley, you know, you don't think the mail is important because everybody, all of your family is with you in your house. Right. And that's a little bit of an, perhaps it's a little bit of an accusation. And John Knightley said, well, I hope someday all of your objects of affection are in yours. In other words,
1: you're going to have your own family with your own children, and we can't be together because I'm married to her and there's nothing I can do about it. That's what he's saying to her. Now, I want to get back to...
0: Cry, and she she, she gets misty-eyed. Okay. Exactly. And Emma has
1: no idea. Now, why would Jane Austen show us that tear? It's you know the the famous uh, statement that Chekhov made about if he's if he shows a gun at the, the gun, beginning yeah. of the play it's going to go off before the end and it's going to be this important. This is like
0: Jane Fairfax's vagina is the gun. You know, all, <laughs>
1: all, all, all these well that's one way of putting it. No, uh, <laughs> all these little micro details that mean that are atmospheric in the overt story they mean nothing they have no something you can hang your hat on as to what they mean you'd be wildly guessing if you tried to say why she cries at that moment.
0: No, no. In the overt in the overt story, she is very upset. She has to be a governess. I think you'll you'll see oh, true. that.
1: Okay, true. Right, right, right. Okay. In any good double entendre, the the surface has to work really well. Yeah. unless Else, it's not a good double entendre. Yeah. So it's no. I mean, I get constantly get people. I've gotten constantly people saying, "Well, it works so well in the way we read it the normal way." And I'd say, "Well, if it didn't, then it would be nobody would even read the damn novel in the first place." Right. It's got to be working. A good double entendre goes both ways. Now, I'd like to get back so that we don't get too far, of course, to Plan A. What was what when Jane comes to Highbury? I'm saying that what she's primarily looking to do, she doesn't want to give away her baby. Right. She wants to find a husband that will be willing to be the father to it. That's why she goes to Weymouth once she realizes that she's pregnant, and that's where she seeks out Frank Churchill, who she knows all about because oh. he's 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 available. He's a rich. A uh, prospective heir uh, from the hometown. He's just like her. No, you know, blah blah blah. So she makes him feel it's sort of like uh, with Marianne and 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 uh, Willoughby, the same thing. At first, I thought he was stalking her. Then one day, it occurred to me eight years later, maybe she wants she put herself where he would find her because she's in because Marianne Dashwood's in the same problem as Jane Fairfax. She's pregnant already, and she, oh, and she needs a farmer. Yes. Okay, but that's- okay, well, that, We
0: haven't gotten into Sense and Sensibility we yet.
1: We haven't got over there, but but I'm saying he repeated these memes in different mm-hmm. novels, and in some places it's more visible than in the others, uh, et cetera. So she was trying to get Frank to marry her. And Frank, at first, is all too interested. Even though I think he's bisexual, I think that he, uh, which is why, by the way, Amy Heckerling has the Frank character be gay.
0: Yeah, she yeah. picked
1: up on this. He picked up on his sexual ambiguity very well. Uh, but I think that Frank is goes both ways, and therefore he would have been happy to marry Jane. But what happens is, uh, as he's sitting there and they're lo- and they're watching Jane sing. Remember when Jane sings and Knightley gets all pissed off because. Frank is making her sing and whatever. And then later, or before or later, uh, Frank is sitting there with Emma and they're whispering about Mr. Dixon and all this kind of stuff. What happens is there's a moment there where Frank pauses and he's like, he seems like there's something that indicates he's astonished. And he stops in the middle of a sentence and he pauses and then he looks at Emma and then Emma says something completely clueless. And then he realizes Emma has no idea what it is that he's seen. What he has seen is that Jane is pregnant. He had no clue until that moment that Jane was pregnant, and that he was about to get stuck with a pregnant woman who was not coming to him because she really is interested in him, but who's looking for a father. And then the, the, another giant piece of the puzzle is another character we haven't even mentioned yet, who is the, the, the most nauseating character in the, oh, who's the most nauseating, and, and Mrs. Elton,
0: Mrs. Elton. Mr. E <laughs> and Mrs. Elton.
1: Now I have to do a slight digression and, and tell you something that you wouldn't otherwise realize. Oh, a lot I,
0: we can't support any digressions.
1: Uh, you guys, you're always right, <laughs> right on the point. Uh, you know, there's this charade in Emma, of course, the one that has that Emma and Harriet try to solve, right? And right. then right. Harriet that's is struggling. Mean, yeah, the and riddle. Well, not even just the riddle. There's three, three. There's a mini. There's a mini charade that's like four lines. Then there's the big charade that's like three or four stanzas, and then. Is Mr. Woodhouse in his syphilitic haze, coming in and trying to remember? Oh,
0: snap! <laughs> I think that's another. Of blood.
1: I'm not the one who. who
0: I told you it wasn't uh, dementia. <laughs> <laughs> well, syphilis causes dementia. Oh, blah. blah. Jill, Jill, Jill I it was Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Well,
1: this is what part of my luck is that in 1999, Jill Hyde Stevenson, a professor in Colorado came up with this theory that blew the roof off of Jane Austen's studies because she suggested that the riddle that he's trying to remember, actually, if you read all the verses of it, is, is clearly a salacious sort of uh, commentary about having syphilis, basically. And, and just, trust me, if you read, the, the, it's so obvious that this is a dirty thing that David Garrick wrote. Why is Mr. Woodhouse trying to remember this? Well, it indicates, excuse me, that, that he has some issues that, that relate to that. Uh, But the charade uh, that uh, Emma says the answer to which is courtship, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it has another, at least one other answer. And you can go to the JASNA website and you can read the article by the person who discovered this, whose name is Colleen Sheehan. And she's someone I became friendly with 11 years ago, and then she found this amazing second answer. The second answer of the charade is the Prince of Wales. But Prince of Wales, not A L E S, but H A L E S. In other words, a whale,
0: like, like Moby Dick,
1: a whale, like Moby Dick, a whale, which, by the way, has Prince of Wales in it. Moby Dick, the the, the novel, actually picks up on this in some way. Maybe it's related to Emma. I think uh, that that was the Prince Regent. The Prince Regent was like three hundred pounds and had this rare blood disease. Plus, he was a glutton and a and a, and a waste oh, Man, I wish so I had gotten that
0: guy.
1: He, he was like Chris Christie, That's but like worse. And he was oh. Not- he was, way beyond, he was way beyond the pale, and he was ridiculed for this very publicly, right? Because he was such an asshole as a, as a leader, he drew this kind of ridicule from his people. They didn't love him and, for, and look the other way. They ridiculed him. So it's been proven beyond any reasonable doubt that that is going on underneath the charade that, that supposedly is about courtship. What does that tell us about Jane Austen? So She makes <laughs> she, a political joke. On the guy that she dedicated the novel to, she's skewering him in the in the most uh, obnoxious way. While well, it also turns out that that charade is is an anagram acrostic. It has the the, the different standards, Two stanzas begin with the letters L A M and B. What does that spell? Not in that order. Well, Charles Lamb, who wrote the Prince of Wales poem, that and then there's the thing I have at my blog that that that. Kruppstein caricature that has the whale with all the people floating around. This was in the air in 1812 and 1813. At the very moment Jane Austen was writing Emma, this was out there. This whole controversy about the, the Prince region. So okay, well
0: let's get let's get back to the.
1: But I want but I want here's the wow. punchline. It's also an acrostic because L A M and B. These are the letters of the beginning of the two stanzas, and. Uh, Remember that there's another character who talks about an acrostic. Do you remember who it is and in
0: what circumstance? I'm sure Kristen does. Mrs. Elton.
1: What does she say? Do you remember?
0: She said A, uh, an acrostic was sent to me on my own name, which was Augusta, by the way. An acrostic was sent to me on my own name. It was sent by an abominable puppy. And then she says to Mr. E, Mr. E, she Mystery, says to Mr. Right Elton, yeah. you know who I mean. And she nods at him.
1: Okay, now, do you have any idea who that person is?
0: I know, because you told me. Okay. I have no idea what the hell either of you were talking
1: about. All right, well, then maybe, nope, maybe people listening will be confused, too. What I, there, there is a scene that it, it happens in, like, the later chapters after Mrs. Obviously, because Mrs. Elton is there, and she's speaking very suggestively and very significantly about a puppy. You know who I mean. Now, that could be nothing. It could be a character who never appears in the novel, and, and, and that would, again, be like Chekhov's gun. It would be stupid for Jane Austen to have done this if it was for no reason. So one day, about seven or eight years ago, after I already knew about the Prince of Wales and the acrostic and all this stuff, it's like it percolated in my brain. And one day I realized, oh my God, the charade that Mr. Elton brings to Emma is the acrostic that is given to Mrs. Elton when she's Miss Hawkins. It's the same thing. And that's when I realized, if you remember How I Met Your Mother, did you ever watch How I Met Your Mother? I did
0: the first couple seasons.
1: Frank and Mr. Elton are wingmen to each other. They're on the single circuit together mm-hmm. in London, and guess who gives that charade to Miss Hawkins? Frank. So Frank Churchill hey, Frank. was was is the abominable puppy. He's yeah. the abominable puppy who she's, and of course she would be winking suggestively because he's in the room there he's right at the there. very moment,
0: he's right yes. there.
1: So, it's okay, so I
0: I want to. I'm fascinated with the Jane Fairfax's pregnant theory because I think okay. that's kind of the, the overall yeah. theory. So if we're going through plot-wise, so we've gotten to the part where what we said, Mrs. Weston is now saying she's pregnant. What ha- like, tell me what happens in this in the shadow story? Well, like, well
1: what happens is Frank doesn't want to marry Jane, right? Okay, we, so
0: Frank is not actually in love with Jane. He's engaged to her, but he's no, not he, no, no. He's, he's
1: never he's never engaged to her.
0: Okay, that's, he finds out she's pregnant. Who,
1: That's a cover story that is created at the end of the novel. How do you find out all that stuff? He writes this long letter, which is an entire chapter of the novel, is his letter. Now, when was the last time that a letter written by an extremely deceitful man, young man, is taken as gospel? And yet people read that letter as though it's reciting all the facts of what actually happened. In fact, he's, in my opinion, he's writing that letter because Mr. Knightley has basically a gun to his head and is saying... If you don't write this letter and marry Jane Fairfax now, I'm going to tell the world what you did to your aunt when she died. So with this the...
0: is George Knightley, who knows that John Knightley is the father. He knows everything. so
1: he forces Frank to say that they were engaged so that this cover story will mask over all this stuff of an unmarried, unengaged young woman getting pregnant. Knocked up by his brother, they need to solve this problem, and that's why all the—that's why you have that whole tête-à-tête in Chapter Five between Missus Western and Mister Knightley at the beginning. Go back and reread that. Something. They're
0: talking about Frank Churchill,
1: and they're talking right? about and they're talking about Emma, and there's and and it's a moment where they say, "We're not going to remember that, like something that happened yeah. two years ago. We're not going to remember that because that's too terrible." And then there's a silence. What the hell is that about? They're, is this re- the
0: scene where Mister Knightley tells? Mrs. Weston, that she was an awful governess?
1: Yes. And okay. it's also the one where he, he acts like he's not interested in Emma, whereas I believe he's been interested in her from the beginning. Why would he be interested in Emma if he doesn't really love her? Right. Because she's the heiress of Hartfield, and he may have some cash flow issues. And how do we know that he has Oh, Arnie, why issues? do you have to ruin all of the romance for Wait me. until he starts talking about Pride
0: and Pride. Wait until it's
1: about- So I'm saying that Mrs. Elton- is the proverbial woman scorned think about it if if she was actually scorned by frank who would she blame for taking him away from her
0: what
1: jane yes and then why does she have this obsession with jane and want to look at her everybody does right and
0: and,
1: and, but she particularly has an obsession with jane is hovering over her and it makes everybody super uncomfortable yeah you shouldn't go check your mail you're so sickly you shouldn't
0: walk down the lane it's like It's
1: more than that. She wants to take her in the carriage. She's hovering over her. When they go to Box Hill, she, she says, Jane will stay with us or whatever. Why does Jane tolerate this? Because she knows that she'll be outed as pregnant if she doesn't keep her mouth shut. What is Mrs. Elton trying to accomplish? This is horrible. Where is she trying to get Jane to go? To
0: Mrs. Oh, oh, to be right? a governess way far. Okay, away.
1: think about governess as street slang for something else. What would a governess might be?
0: Are you making like prostitution?
1: She's trying to sell her off into the the, the black market. The, the, oh the, come the, the on! Of course, and there is a a Shakespeare play that is
0: that makes me sad. It is.
1: It, it's a. This is not a comedy. Oh, when was Jane Eyre written? Much later. Oh okay. But, the, but,
0: okay, but there is not theory.
1: <laughs> uh, no, no, Charlotte Bronte was a Janeite She said that oh, yeah. the, the, the word is that she wasn't. She was. And her novels are permeated with Austin material from beginning, and especially Jane Eyre is all about Jane Austen. That's why Rochester's name is Fairfax, for Christ's sake. It's mm-hmm. not an accident. It's all Jane and Fairfax, all of it. Uh, so Wait, this his is first
0: all- name is Fairfax?
1: One of his names is Fa- it's Edward oh, Fairfax Rochester, something like that uh like it's like his mother's maiden name or something like that is fairfax which would make sense that rochester is jane's son
0: so by the way Bay just sent me a message on his phone because he's not allowed to talk on the podcast um That he just wants you to know that this is amaze balls. Amaze balls. Amaze balls. Um, so like just, really
1: good. Is that like his way yeah, of saying? Yeah,
0: um, really amaze good? balls means like this is so great. Awesome sauce. You <laughs> mean, um, his
1: his balls are completely amazed by everything we're talking about.
0: Whoa. Army. I
1: mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand your language. I'm.
0: <laughs> Up. So, amaze balls just means like my mind is being blown. It means so amazing. Great.
1: Yeah, this, this should um, happen. Now,
0: now, so, but just to be clear, yeah. all of, so it sounds like in the Shadow story, basically, well, Mr. Woodhouse is like syphilis Swiss cheese brain. But it sounds like everyone basically knows what's going on except Emma.
1: Yes, there was there was a movie with Bill Murray, which is a, not not that great a movie, but it's called The Man Who Knew Too Little. Uh, it came out about twenty years ago. What happens in this movie, this, this everyday guy, it's sort of like a parody of North by Northwest by Hitchcock, where this ordinary guy thinks he's getting caught up in a, like a reality game where, you know, a, what, what do they call it? Where you, you act like it's a real life thing, but it's not, a, it's, I forget the word for it, but anyway, it turns out he gets enmeshed in a real spy ring, that he doesn't even know about with people being shot and killed and everything, but he this just sort of blunders. It's also like, through.
0: um, uh, true lies. Yeah. Right. Where yeah, the, Arnold, though the wife character yeah. thinks that she's in, it, but it's really fake. Yeah. But then it
1: turns. Yeah. Total recall they're like, where they're creating this managed yeah. reality. Oh, person. God, I love
0: that movie. Yeah. Get, so, get your watch to all,
1: <laughs> Arnold. So. Uh, so anyway, in all seriousness, that's you're right. Emma is the only one who doesn't know what the F is going on. So only why doesn't one. anyone
0: clue Emma in? Is it because, because Emma it, it's, is it's, like it's is it's be complicated?
1: Her. Because it's better that she not know because there, you know, there there's a, a strand which he won't like, which is that Knightley doesn't want her to know because he wants to marry her. And he's a pedophile. He is a pedophile.
0: Thirteen years old. Yeah.
1: He is a pedophile. We talked it, about that. We've, we've talked this, talked this about this that. this is where Gigi, you know, the movie Gigi. Yeah. Uh, the, this Audrey is Hepburn. based on Emma. Emma. This is based on Emma in part. It's based. Okay. It's it's picking up on the same horrible vibe of this. No oh, wait, old, is
0: that the, saying that Gigi's based on Emma? Is that something that is like known, or is this something no, that you've discovered? I'm saying because okay. it's so
1: similar to what I'm describing in the Shadow Story that to me it's the same. Uh, what's her name Claudette whoever wrote it would have known Jane. everybody knew Jane Austen that's the thing by the time we get to the 20th century everybody know every writer who's anybody who wait but any... why, do,
0: why why do we why do we know he's a pedophile this is something I did not understand
1: well he's interested in Emma at that you know and Andrew Davis spoke about, yeah he, he's he's revealing the truth about himself and for that matter Mr. Woodhouse I want to get back to why he's named Henry Oh, right. We totally dropped that. Sorry. In my opinion, he's, and I am not alone in having speculated this, there's a whole bunch of children of doubtful parentage in the novel. It's not just Harriet Smith, who right. nobody knows quite who is her father. Well,
0: Jane Fairfax is an orphan. Jane is an
1: orphan. Frank is an, you know, they died when he was young, blah, blah, blah. Who, who from English history named Henry had a bunch of children by different wives who were all vying for the throne? Uh,
0: Henry VIII? He, that's that's Mr. About the fifth. That's
1: Mr. Woodhouse. He's Mr. W- Mr. Woodhouse is. We're Henry going VIII. with the
0: eighth, right, Henry VIII. Yeah. Yes.
1: He, he's Jane Austen has recreated in Highbury high, like high, like the court high, uh, pun, right? Uh, has recreated the story of Henry VIII with all these different children sort of buzzing around mm-hmm. and, and incest in the air. There are Those...
0: less decapitations though. Are Some you saying? Are you saying that Henry Woodhouse is the? father of Harriet Smith?
1: Of everybody. He's the father of, of everybody. Of Frank Churchill? And Jane Fairfax.
0: Why aren't they syphilitic babies?
1: Uh, because they were conceived before. Well, actually, there was a theory by a Janeite from 20 years ago that you can find in the uh, Jasnah uh, publication. Uh, what's her name? From Rochester. I forget her name. But anyway, she came up with the idea that at the time was very risque that Miss Bates might be the mother of Harriet. Mm-hmm. Because Hetty and Henrietta, Harriet, whatever, this is the same person. First- that was Ms. actually name. Ms. Ms.
0: Bates' name. Miss Bates.
1: Miss Bates is, is surely Miss Bates is surely the mother of Jane. She's surely the, the, mother, mother the mother of Miss Bates. Wait,
0: Miss Bates is the mother of Jane or Harry? There
1: was no sister. There is no sister. Wait, There's what? Sister. She's the mother of
0: both.
1: She's the married mother of Jane. There's different mothers for different, you know, Mrs. Weston okay. is probably the mother of Emma. I, I'm not quite sure because this is understandably murky. But I have my speculations as to who is who, but it just rang true in my mind that this is Henry VIII with children scattered all over the place with different mothers, males and females, and all the rest of it.
0: And we all know that Henry VIII, as he said, the love of his life was actually Jane. Now stop. The wife that he liked the most. That's right, it was Jane. That's right. That's right. Well, Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour. But stop for a second. I will. Stop, stop. Collaborate and listen. (laughs) Actually, this is funny because I was writing an email to Kristen earlier where I was like giving an outline of our podcast and I had a part where I put Arnie time and before that I put stop Arnie time. (laughs) I didn't know if she would get it and I should have trusted.
1: This has all worked out just fine. Go ahead, Kristen.
0: But, but, so we talked about this in an earlier podcast. It was a convention to name the daughter after the mother. Yeah uh the mother miss like like lorelei and rory and rory right right miss bates her nickname is hetty right presumably presumably as Henrietta. it could also be harriet exactly harriet smith is named harriet yeah and that's the connection and she (laughs) loves
1: her she loves her yeah i want i want to before i don't know how much longer we have so i want to make sure there's a couple of points we don't miss and then whatever remaining time we have can go wherever this.
0: Finish time. off the plot for us. I want to hear about the murder because I think that's awesome.
1: Oh, Frank murdered his wife, his uh, his aunt, not his. I mean,
0: clearly, right? Who just yeah. like kicks off at this most convenient and, and time? And if you read
1: the language, it's quintessential wordplay by Jane Austen because it says, "After a brief struggle, <laughs> a brief struggle." It didn't say you, no, right? It's like it killed. And then I I put the pieces together. I'm like Columbo. I said, "Well, why does why more question
0: with- on me?" <laughs> <laughs> No, that's the joke. That's the the joke.
1: That's the (laughs) Does he say that? I didn't watch Columbo. Oh, my
0: God. Okay, so let me explain Uh, the joke. So, when when Columbo is interviewing a suspect, he'll go through the whole interview and be like, all right, well, thank you. But he knows what's really going on. And he Mm -hmm. walks away. He'll turn around and go, one more thing. And then
1: he like nails (laughs) it. I got it. I got it. And you know who else does stuff in a different way, the same thing, and is based on uh, Jane Austen as well, is uh, Miss Markle. By Agatha Christie. Oh, oh I see that. And...
0: Oh, this is like my idea that I had in an earlier podcast where we do the Jane Austen mysteries. Yeah, that's right. Where Jane Austen is in Steventon. Why and... do you think?
1: Why do you think that Emma is called the detective no- novel without a murder? And the fact of it is, it is a detective novel, and there is a murder. But okay, you know... so let's
0: let's back up and get back to the plot because I want to know how this ends. So, 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 uh, so uh, Frank Churchill things... doesn't want to marry Jane Fairfax.
1: But Mister Knightley tells him he's like you're going to marry her.
0: It's and, like Darcy and, with Wickham. He's like you're no, married.
1: Actually, and actually, in the end, they don't marry. You know why they don't? How you know they right, don't? You're marry? jumping
0: ahead. You're jumping ahead, though.
1: No, no, no. But let me say they don't marry because if you read what Jane Austen says at the end of the novel, we have all these weddings taking place together, right? You have uh, uh, Harriet and 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 what's his name, Robert, Robert Martin. Martin, and you have Emma and Knightley, and the Eltons have already gotten married. But it says, as for Jane, and they were gonna wait for November. It says they're gonna wait for November, which means they're not gonna get married. And that's why we're told about her uh, Frank resetting the Churchill family jewels for Jane, right? You're gonna make them mm-hmm. into a year. What's really happening here is that she no longer needs to marry him. The baby's it's already happening. been given to Mrs. Weston. The reason for the, the sham marriage no longer exists, but there had to have been a, a, a sham engagement. To... George
0: Knightley convinces Frank Churchill to marry Jane
1: Fairfax. He doesn't just convince him. He basically he says, if you don't, it. I'm going to out your murder of your aunt. Like dart, oh, so the... wait,
0: he's already murdered the aunt at this point.
1: That's right, because okay. why does Knightley suddenly leave in a big rush to leave Highbury to go off to London to, to hang out with John? Well, what if that's all BS? What he's really doing is going to Frank, Frank Find Frank, who's already escaped from Highbury, right? He just skips right out of after Box Hill. He's, he's out like, on the like about... midnight. The midnight horse and he's gone. Knightley goes and finds him as 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 Frank is writing the letter to his aunt, you know, that one, the mm-hmm. one we find in chapter 50. He gets about halfway through the letter writing it the way he wanted to write it. And then Knightley shows up. So then he says like a pause in the middle of the letter, and you can read it. It's so amazing. And it says, "Oh, I had to walk away for a few minutes and cool down or whatever." And then suddenly he's 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 on track because Knightley has basically said, "You write it this way," which gets back to the whole idea of who wrote Robert Martin's letter in the first place, right? Remember way back with ghost writing of letters, and and you know, and and, and Knightley figures out that Emma has ghost written Harriet's refusal, right? Mm-hmm. Or. or But what a lot of people have said is that Knightley wrote Robert Martin's letter, which is why it's so smart and so clever. It's because Knightley wrote it. That's why he gets so damn upset when Mm -hmm. it's not accepted because he wrote the damn letter himself.
0: That's actually really, I really like that. It's very cute. Aside from the overall shadow plot, that's a really cute idea that he and Emma are both kind of um, Cyrano, Bergiac. And and yeah,
1: but then I extended it to this final letter of Frank's and said he did the same thing there too. He's right, Knightley is the, Is the Oberon of this Midsummer Night's Dream, if you know Midsummer Night's Dream.
0: Yes, and actually, I want when you finish, I want to talk to you about Shakespeare later.
1: Okay. So I think the only other area, major area, two areas we haven't covered yet, which we can do now pretty quickly, is Harriet, because asking you now, uh, if if you don't already, it's not cheating because you already know. What could be what could be motivating Harriet to suck up to Emma and and flatter her and do all this stuff? Maybe Harriet is the moron and the gullible idiot that she seems to be. Is there another possibility about Harriet in your imagination? Is there another explanation that could account for her behavior?
0: You mentioned that you think Mr. Woodhouse is basically everyone's dad. So if Harriet was Emma's sister, maybe?
1: Yes. Is that what what you're going for? No, no. What I'm going for is that what if Harriet is not an idiot? What could explain her behavior? What if she's not the idiot that she seems to be? what if she's actually the harriet who actually tells emma remember the scene when harriet confronts emma and and when emma finally realizes that harriet was is interested in knightley right yeah Mm -hmm. what if uh if you read that speech again harriet her, her manner of speaking is completely different there than it was in any other point before and we almost don't see her after that scene but uh, all before that, it's oh Miss Woodhouse, you're so smart, Miss Woodhouse. I don't know what to think, Missus Woodhouse. Suddenly, in this speech, it's like you know a half a page of literate adult diction, like like a, a mature, intelligent person speaking, and actually horrifying Emma with this sudden thing. Well, I, you know whatever. What if that's the real Harriet all along? What if so she's Harriet almost is...
0: like a Scarlet Pimpernel yes. style character yes. where she plays the fop, but she's or, super smart. Or,
1: or to take the. Uh, what I think was the main source for her, for Jane Austen, you know that Samuel Richardson wrote this very famous novel called, he wrote several that, that Jane Austen knew them all and nobody argues about this. One of the first one was Pamela. Then there was uh, 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 Sir Charles Grandison. Then there was Clarissa, right? These oh, three,
0: yes. oh, three wow, major
1: man. huge gigantic epistolary novels of How I upcoming. fell in love with Sean Bean right.
0: Clarissa right. Right. <laughs>
1: exactly. ah. so, so with Pamela you have this young housemaid who is a servant, without housemaid, who is being, you know, basically sexually stalked by her master, Mr. B, for the half the novel, and then if she's in fear of him and all this kind of stuff. Eventually, she winds up marrying him. Well, did you know that Henry Fielding, who wrote Tom Jones, who was a contemporary of mm-hmm. Samuel Richardson, he wrote a parody of Pamela called Shamela, S-H-A-M, like a sham, like a, like a fake, like a sham, Shamala, in, in which you have the same character, shown to be a, a, a deceiver, a, a flatterer and a deceiver who's pretending to be an idiot in order to gain her uh, uh, get somewhere in the world. That's Harriet Smith in the Shadow Story. Okay. She's, she's the opposite of an idiot, which is why her answers to the charade are actually pointing to the Prince of Wales.
0: So then why is she sucking up to Emma, though?
1: Because she wants to get to Knightley all along from the so very she beginning. Does, so she
0: does want to get to, to George. She's,
1: she's sucking up to, to Emma to get to, to Knightley. Okay. So... And now to, to please uh, Kristen, this is now I'm going to reveal the one discovery about Emma that is not mine and I want to give proper credit to the right person. About 2007, after I've already gone public with what I've been talking to you about now in the group and, and horrifying and appalling, large numbers of Janeites in every direction, uh, I was approached by another Janeite who I had sort of seen her footprint on the internet but had never spoken to her or emailed with her. Her name is Anielka Briggs. She's an Australian uh, who lived in England for a while. And she's actually a descendant of one of uh, uh, Edward Austin, the brother Edward Austin, oh, so nice. the rich brother. She's a descendant like nine times removed or whatever in some way from the rice part of that family. Uh, she contacts me and she says, uh, I, I, I've been reading about you. I think we, we have a lot in common in our approach. And long story short, we had a conversation. I was in brief contact with her for a few weeks by phone. Uh, which was interesting, 12 hours apart, you know, between Florida and uh, Australia. And I proceeded to tell her in an hour conversation, everything I just told you about Emma. This was nine years ago, or eight and a half years ago. And at the end of it, she, uh, I, we, we talk, stopped talking. She sends me an email that night and says, I know who the baby was. And I write her back and I say, I don't get it. I told you the baby, Jane baby. is Jane Fairfax's baby. Her name is Anna Weston. That's who the baby is. She says, no, I know who the baby was in real life. And of course I get like, woo. And so we wind up having a conversation and I can't guess what she's talking about. I have no idea. Cause I, I can tease other people who can't guess what I'm teasing at, but I couldn't figure out what she was teasing at. Well, if you, do you play Scrabble?
0: Oh, I'm awful.
1: All right. But you know at to play Scrabble. I'm the these, these Scrabble piles. Think,
0: think he's of, freaking out because he's apparently like the Scrabble King, I guess. Right, think of the name. Think of the name Anna Anna, Anna
1: Weston A N N A W E S T O N. I'm awful at anagrams too. See this in your mind. This is this is it's not even an anagram. It's it's visible. Okay. Now, how would you manipulate the an- letters? N A N N
0: A. And
1: then A W E is pronounced. Aw. And then S T.
0: Jane Austen. Goddamn.
1: no, it's Anna Anna Austen. And Anna Austin okay. was Anna, Jane They
0: Austin. wrote Jane Austen, God damn it! <laughs> to me, to be like, why are you so thick? And Anna Austin. i not at work like. This is why you know I don't see these things. You Anna know who,
1: You know who Anna, Anna Austin like was in real life? Austin.
0: Okay, Anna Austin. No.
1: Anna Austin was her niece, or at least people think it was her niece.
0: So she was giving a clue as to her niece's parentage. But wait. There's
1: Wait it, it, now, if if you didn't have the shadow story of Emma that I've described to you with this baby swap that goes on off stage, what would that appear to be? Well, it would appear to be a kind of an homage to her, her beloved niece. This was her niece who wrote. This was the niece that she gave writing advice to and wrote about the four or five families in a country village and uh, two inches of ivory. You know,
0: this Did is the one. It?
1: So this was I'm her j- her. This was the writing niece. Okay, the one that she was very attached to. uh Uh, whose mother died when she was very young supposedly and then eventually she had the evil stepmother which was her brother james's wife mary etc so it would look like in the surface if you don't know anything about the shadow story of emma it would look like this was like an homage to her niece like here here's mr and mrs weston are my brother james and his wife mary and this is their daughter anna and i'm sort of making this nice in joke for our family of this innocent
0: thing except she's questioning the parent she's but if I'm here. saying that it's
1: not really the the daughter, yeah. but it's really the the daughter of of a of a young single woman,
0: who's the? Oh my young God! Are woman? you telling me that Jane Austen? Okay, so Jane Austen had a daughter.
1: No, no, no. Or or that she liked putting that in as if she had it. In other words, the alternative I have to say it right away is not that Anna was really her daughter and that Jane, at sixteen, got knocked up by a local fr- man. It could be that Jane was so attached to her niece that she felt like it was her daughter who got like taken away from her. So That's a better. nicer way of
0: putting but it.
1: Isn't, right. But isn't that remarkable that, that this sort of synergy between me and this other scholar, like lightning struck for just one minute, mm-hmm. and something I found that was unbelievable, something that she figured out like within 24 hours, and it, it exploded when it went
0: together. But let me also go back to the question that I asked Arnie When I was first got curious about this whole story. When she was young and innocent. Why is Jane Bennett named Jane? Why is Jane Fairfax named Jane?
1: You're going to hate hate why the reason, because it's the same reason. Why? Jane Bennett is sick. She's sick for the same reason Jane Fairfax is sick.
0: Everyone's pregnant. Jane Bennett gets sick. She goes away. She stays in London. Yeah. for a long time. So you're saying in Pride and awake, Prejudice, from pregnant. by Bingley? Is she but pregnant
1: by no, Bingley? No, just like it's not Frank in, it's somebody who is so awful you can't stand, no. you're gone. I don't oh, want to you? know. it, it it's, it's so awful that it is beyond awful. And remember, there's a scene in Pride and Prejudice where, uh, where they're in the Netherfield Salon and Mrs. Bennet is there uh, talking, boasting about Jane being so pretty and how when she was 16, when she was in London, there was this guy who made a poem on her, a sonnet, wrote a sonnet for her, but then he sort of flaked and he was gone. Do you know who that was?
0: Who was
1: it? If the person, who, who defends that guy? And, and, you know, when Elizabeth makes a sneering comment and says, oh, it was probably a sonnet that will start, it was going to starve away. Like, she makes a derogatory comment about the sonnet, and then somebody pipes up and said, but I thought poetry was the food of love. Who says that?
0: I don't remember just tell Sorry. me I don't oh no come on
1: they've been involved the whole time
0: okay Kristen's taking a bathroom break <laughs>
1: <laughs> a welcome
0: bathroom break yeah that okay she so can one. edit this out if she wants but I think it's kind of hilarious so you should leave it in uh- <laughs> Um, so that's
1: the reason, that's the reason they're both named Jane. Before
0: before you take away all the romance for me, Arnie, um, I think that we've now kind of covered the shadow story and Emma and my mind has been completely blown. So I want to get back. Remember I said, I was going to ask you about Shakespeare. And I think this is a good time to do it because you have now from the shadow story of Emma extrapolated some ideas into Jane Austen's character, into her life. And a couple years ago, I attended this really interesting discussion at the Shakespeare Folger Library here in DC about the authorship question, the Shakespeare authorship question. Was it actually Shakespeare who wrote Shakespeare's plays? And one of the things that the author talked about was the danger of looking at an author's work and finding clues as to their lives within it. And the question is always, how closely can we read uh, fiction text to understand an author's life? Um, I don't know if you know, are familiar with Shakespeare at all, but to me, I find this very interesting where the people who uh, question the authorship of the Shakespeare plays and your really close read of Jane Austen to me, it seems kind of similar. So I don't know if you have a theory about this or if you've heard anything so glad you know it. It. It,
1: In my opinion, Jane Austen learned to do this shadow story deal or she got inspired to do it by... Shakespeare.
0: So, you not, you ha- so you have dug in. To sh- so, what is your... I spent, years,
1: I, I spent years looking at Shakespeare also. So, it's do a- you
0: think... So, obviously, you think it's fair to look at an author well, 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 fiction I, text and draw from there.
1: Well, well no, you're, I, I, you're... That's not so. What okay. I, I noticed how careful I was, which I wasn't at first when I first... The, the story we told about the baby and Emma and, and Jane Austen's real life, you notice in the beginning, I wasn't careful. And I was saying, oh, of course, she had a baby, it was her. I've learned through experience and thinking about it (laughs) that you shouldn't extrapolate and and conclusively decide things like it was she really had a baby or not without other real life evidence to support it. So, but what I am certain of is that she meant to make it look like that was the case, even if it was totally made up by her as a fantasy. As far as Shakespeare is concerned, I absolutely avoid at all costs the authorship controversy because I think it's, it's doomed. It can never... It can never lead anywhere useful because we really can't know what what who was really Shakespeare. But ultimately, I don't care. I right, don't, I mean, does it doesn't really
0: matter in the end, right?
1: What matters is that Shakespeare wrote these somebody, some one these or plays, more plays.
0: These plays exist. These brilliant right. plays. And,
1: exist. and and Jane Austen. What happened is exactly is that all this stuff I was finding in Jane Austen around around about two thousand and seven. Uh, it was becoming clear to me that Shakespeare had been very important to her, which is something I didn't know when I first started looking at this because I was ignorant of all the scholarly literature. But, you know, it's not only that Henry Crawford talks about knowing or, or uh, Edmund Bertram talked about knowing Shakespeare by in, osmosis Crawford. and all that stuff. Uh, it's that I, I actually read most of Shakespeare during 2006 to 2008, mo- almost all the plays. And then before that, I'd only read like a half dozen of them. I, I read another 30 of them. Because uh, I realized I need to understand Shakespeare better because it's so crucial for Jane Austen. And early in that process, I focused on Shakespeare's most enigmatic and greatest play, which is, of course, Hamlet, right? right? And
0: Or another white dude goes crazy and why do I care?
1: <laughs> but, but I'll just tell you this. About- is not like you are-
0: no, obviously I'm being facetious.
1: But but I'll but I'll tell you only this because otherwise this is a whole Pandora's box about Shakespeare that is a whole other That's a
0: whole other podcast. <laughs>
1: that that Hamlet is a double story. And I figured it out. And I'm not the first person to have tried to, to try to work it out, but the shadow story of Hamlet, it, it, it there's a fork in the road of interpreting Hamlet. And it's something that people have been looking at for hundreds of years, but they couldn't figure out how to make it all fit together. Well, I did, and that's gonna be in my book that I'm writing.
0: Oh, okay. So uh, is is, then, is the
1: ghost? Is the ghost a real ghost? If the ghost is a real ghost in Hamlet, then you have one story. If the ghost is a hallucination of a crazy schizophrenic, it's right. another story. There are two think, independent yeah, stories. I
0: think that is actually. I mean, your ideas about Jane Austen's stories, I feel like are like completely new to me. But I've heard those two interpretations of Hamlet. Um, I've heard yeah. before. Um, so, but now that we're, I, I feel like we've kind of just we've talked a lot about the Shadow Story and Emma. This might be a, are your um, you've talked about your theories also about Shakespeare. Are these things available on your blog? This might be a good time to mention how people can learn more Absolutely. if they're interested.
1: Yes. I, I mean, I've written very little about Shakespeare publicly because mm-hmm. I've actually preferred to keep most of that in my, my pocket for a future right. time. It's like Pandora's box to, to open that one as well. But almost everything I've been everything I've been saying to you and a thousand other things about Jane Austen can be found in my blog. The name of the blog is called Sharp Elves Society.blogspot.com. So it's the Google blog uh, platform. Uh, and I call it the Sharp Elves Society because of Jane Austen's famous comment to her sister about uh, Pride and Prejudice, about the ambiguities of Pride and Prejudice. And she says, But I do, not write, I do not write for such dull elves. And she's quoting at that point Walter Scott in Marmion I do not write for such dull elves as I have not a great deal of ingenuity themselves. And so I figured I'm writing this stuff for the sharp elves who are not the dull elves. Right. Uh, and I'm also on Twitter and, uh, and uh, I also have my email which is arniepearlstein at gmail.com. So I'd be more than happy to hear from anybody who wants to read in my blog, who wants to contact me, uh, wants to follow me on Twitter. I welcome all of it.
0: Kristen. Don't let's... forget to say your Twitter handle. Yeah, what's your Twitter uh, handle?
1: It's at Jane Austen Code. So one word, uh, like one word. Like the Jane Da Vinci Austin. code. Right no, right, no no underscores or anything. At Jane Austen code. And I so, started tweeting really seriously a couple of years ago. And so you'll find links there. And you'll find any of the Jane Austen novels that you're interested in. You'll find something I've written about it if you go to my blog. Because I got like 1,500 posts there.
0: I looked at your Twitter, and what I found was interesting. It's not just Jane Austen. Or well, I write
1: about random other stuff. <laughs>
0: Which is how I refer
1: to Twitter. Well, Jane Austen led me to all these other writers, like when War and Peace was just on on the, on the oh God, Lifetime or whatever. Uh, I think Tolstoy was a Janeite. And I saw stuff as I was looking at visiting. So as I look around, I find that everybody, it's like six degrees of separation. There is no author before her or after her who is not directly connected to her, who is one of the great authors. They're all engaged with her in some way. It's like this big picture that Jane Austen is the, the center of a wheel.
0: Well, she is, I think, and again, as we promote on this podcast, she is one of the pillars of English literature, I think is not unfair to say. Um, whereas she was influenced by Shakespeare, people who came after her were influenced by her.
1: Especially women, especially women, but not Absolutely. only women, but especially women, but also Nabokov and Tolstoy and Mark Twain, you know, all this, all especially the ones who said they didn't like Jane Austen. It's a put-on
0: so there's a guy I know and I'm like listen to my podcast and he's like Mark Twain said and I'm a Mark Twain fan
1: and I'm like God, Mark Twain uh, was Janeite. Mark makes
0: sense because
1: he was a satirist and so was she so he would pick up on her put-ons and her games and everything and the biggest game was that he did that he put on was that he didn't like Jane Austen right
0: I think' it's, I think it's really interesting that this um <laughs> what we respond to is when people give us crap about liking Jane Austen and how they're kind of the romance novels and that's all they are is until the movies came out, this didn't really exist as a thing. Um, She was kind of not relegated, but mostly considered in the sphere of scholars and serious literature. And then when the movies came out, that's when the perception of her as more of a frivolous writer started. And then there's, It's so cyclical how her um, legacy is viewed. think about it. How
1: many, 40 years ago, how many people were there who were familiar with Jane Austen who hadn't read the novels? Almost none. Right. Now you've got this army of people who've seen these, one or more of these movies. And as many, more of them get made, half of them was such crap. They're so far removed both from the overt stories and the shadow stories. I mean, they're not right. even creative. They're just going off like the zombies thing or whatever. Are so ridiculous that now people have this even more distorted idea about Jane Austen. But I'll say the one movie you really want to see when it comes out, you don't want to miss it because it was amazing. And I saw it at Sundance uh, six weeks ago. Is Love and Friendship by Witt Stillman, uh, which is actually an adaptation of Lady Susan, but oh. he called it, he called it Love and un-
0: Friendship. No, it's a it's published. You haven't have read Lady Susan? I'll you have, to have to do, gotta do it. You've got to read it.
1: you got to read Lady. It's not that long. Read Lady Susan, <laughs> and then see this movie. Kate Beckinsale is so unbelievably good in this movie. She should win an Oscar.
0: we so Kate good. Beckinsale in another Austin She was to Emma. Lesson. She was Emma. Hello, Hello. Yeah. bringing it back. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we, this has been fascinating, Arnie. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And you I guys they- have been amazing.
1: You've been exactly what I envisioned, that that it would be a dialogue and a, and a, and a very active conversation, and you fulfilled your roles magnificently. So. Thank oh, you.
0: well. <laughs> Thank you so. We're just gonna give ourselves little props here. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I did nothing. Maggie's brilliance was on display in this podcast. So when when she makes her next comment about, it, I just provide the jokes. You'll know that that's B as well. I don't. I don't know. Maggie's the MB, MVP of this podcast. And she's also brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much. For you, basically, by yeah. the end of the podcast, we're both kind of drunk, and we just, like, fawn all over each I other. Can't... Oh, you're brilliant, no. Kristen. What, what,
1: what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by the end of the broadcast? I, I thought it was well, happening not, a lot I sooner know. than that. No, <laughs> the, the
0: thing the that I drank so much. <laughs> well, this <laughs> our last episode. She was drunk when we started. I'm like, I just... you, know,
1: you know, there's somebody on Twitter who calls himself. Drunk Austin, you know? That? Oh,
0: yeah, I it <laughs> Drunk Austin. So I think that we can talk about this now, and if we can't, she can edit it out, but she's made it Facebook official. So Kristen is actually moving very soon um, to, to Idaho. Idaho. What else is she going to do, right? Oh, there just, you go. Uh, 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 and,
1: and I told her that when she's here, she's only a few hours' drive from Portland, where we have a very active chapter of the Jane Austen Society of North right. America. But even though you won't be able to come, Maggie, but Kristen, you should go to the um, the Jasnah annual general meeting in, in late October in D.C. where they'll be yes. talking about
0: the annual meeting is in D.C. and the focus yeah. which is right by where we are recording this yeah. and the focus is on Emma Yeah, and It'll I encourage everyone to go to the Jasner website check it out it's really interesting Me persuasions the newsletter yeah. um, unfortunately despite the fact that the annual conference will be happening about five miles from where I live, I'm going to be out of the country, so I can't go. And I had these um, hopes that we could do a live podcast; oh, it would be amazing. Be so but it can't happen because I'm going to be in Japan. What? <laughs> with Bae. with so Ben, and other that friends. that won't be
1: too terrible.
0: Right. It's, I'm really yeah. sad yeah. to miss it. Not really. Uh- <laughs> uh, so Arnie, thank you so much for coming. Uh, we pleasure. really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. It was really fun. Um, we're going to, we have to do our typical old, uh, end of the podcast wrap up, wrap if you don't mind, uh, bearing with us. Yeah. Bear with us, I mean, first of all, mailbag, right? Mailbag. Yes. Mailbag. Well, mailbag. we didn't really get any questions, but we have shout outs, but we do have shout outs. Uh, thank you again to Ian. I have to think, uh, we, we, we shout out to, to, we did a shout out to Mr. I, in the last, like, Mr. J. Mr. Mr. I, J. In the last <laughs> podcast, he said it's okay if I say his name. So, Ian, thank you very much. I will say that, Ian, if you um, if you go to the YouTube channel, our YouTube channel, which is called First Impressions, the YouTube channel, he has left a lot of comments. I will say that he has challenged me very much in, uh, about the adaptations. I have revisited a number of adaptations because of his comments. I will say he has also told me, that I need to rewatch Metropolitan, which is, of course, another Whit Stillman adaptation, because I will say I tried and I didn't get it, and I guess I wasn't smart enough, so I'll try again. Okay, so but, well,
1: actually, I just taped and I, a DVR, and I'm going to watch The Last Days of Disco, which, oh, okay. is with, which is with Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Savini, right. so I'm, I'm curious to see what I think as well.
0: Arnie, I think you need to develop some kind of Kate Beckinsale-Austin theory, That's because right. it seems like there's a lot. She's like the Kevin Bacon She's awesome. really,
1: she's really smart. And, and you just, you just have to see love and friendship. You'll be, you'll be so bowled over.
0: So Kristen, we should do a movie night. We should so do movie night. And, um, and so, so also shout out to Jessica. Thank you for your email. And Alicia, Alicia again. And Alicia again. Thank you for your email. Alicia has actually said she's listened to this a certain episodes of our podcast more than once.
1: Shout Bless, perfect. Yeah.
0: Uh, can I make a Can I make a confession, Please. Kristen? Go sometimes ahead. I listen to our episodes more than once because <laughs> I just <think> we're <laughs> <laughs> and I forget. Like we've recorded, we've been recording this podcast now since what September? Yep. So it's um, oh, yeah. since July, right? Just yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's true. So I will sometimes forget, like the earlier episodes, and I go back, especially the one with Kevin, the mm-hmm. manchester Park episode, Kristen's mm-hmm. husband, mm-hmm. who is hilarious. Mm -hmm. um so thank you for for everyone who has emailed us thank you so much we're so happy to hear 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 from you oh my goodness (laughs) arnie has a big poster that says jane Austen wants you
1: this was i I had this made for me when i was in miami to to try to solicit members for our chapter of down there so i just thought people would enjoy seeing it so we want you to love jane Austen, right
0: and to listen to our podcast Um, Um, yes so thank you to everyone who's emailed us it's so nice to hear from you that people that we don't know listen to it because i really as i say every episode i thought it would just be our mothers (laughs) so it's really nice to hear from people and Kristen will share our email address so you can email us if you haven't yet our email address is first impressions podcast at gmail.com and you can use it with the periods or without first.impressions.podcast or without Gmail, doesn't care. And please email us, and we love hearing from you. And please tell us where you are because I have analytics about the podcast a little bit, but we have so many countries for different people. And there's one person in French Polynesia, which I want to say, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you want, you're, you're, right, you're right, French Polynesia. <laughs> And uh, if you do enjoy the podcast, feel free to email your friends and your fellow J Knights because, um, you know, we're still in- an indie, indie <laughs> podcast, artisanal, artisanal, podcast. <laughs> whole brain podcast. <laughs> uh, it, it, I get really excited every time someone sends us an email. I don't know, about, she'll Kristen um, is the kind of webmaster for us, and she and she also edits everything and blah blah blah. She's amazing, and she'll forward me the emails and be like, oh my god. Cool. Like, oh we got an email it's so exciting <laughs> we get really excited so even if you just want to send us your name and say hi i'm from so-and-so yeah. we'd love to hear from you Here send us name. questions we'd love to answer any questions anybody has we would just love to hear from you in general that's right um so we talk about our wines. wine Wine, <laughs> plural like like since this is also on youtube i'll just take the bottle okay the first wine we drank since we had, had two there. bottles is an Albarino is the uh varietal it's a 2013 it's from homewood winery i actually bought it when i was um out in california in wine country in sonoma for my um, husband's stepbrother's wedding homewood winery is a small winery if you are ever in sonoma please look it up because it's amazing um and so the second wine which we haven't finished yet but don't worry gentle listeners we will uh is a prosecco and i love prosecco and i thought this was delightful um it is where the hell is this from uh it's i don't even know if i could put it yeah you know what here's the label just i'll just hold it up prosecco and it's like hey it's good it's i good. love prosecco it's not super dry just, like champagne yeah. tends, tends to be but it still has a little bit of the bubbles. Yes, yeah. uh so do we have any other um all this so oh i just remembered For our next episode, I'm trying to convince Kristen to let us record a commentary track for the 1996 Gwyneth Paltrow, Emma movie, which you could then listen to while you're watching the movie or just listen to if you know the movie and think was funny. And I think this would be so fun yes it would be so fun if you know how to do that email us no, i know how to do it you just okay. watch the movie here on this it, computer yeah. while we record but, it you know like emma you know and also mystery science theater 3000 which if you know what that is that's or Rift exactly tracks Rift tracks Rift tracks they probably have a tutorial and i was also gonna say what Kristen? So, don't drink an empty it's not it's take, empty take from the one that actually it still has it it's are you to
1: of your heads watching the movie screen no we're here. not i
0: don't think we're that technically that we'll <laughs> just kind of watch the movie and make ridiculous comments and then people can at home they can hit we'll say hit start now and start the movie while they watch it and they can listen um i guess i guess i was just going to say thank you to everybody thank you arnie thank you so much for doing this it was it's you know we really appreciate it and we really think you're brilliant and we and we appreciate you coming on the podcast thank you maggie thank you Bay. Best boyfriend ever. My dream for Bay is that this podcast becomes so popular that fangirls create a website Her like to the mysterious, Bae. never seen Bay. <laughs>
1: he's, he's the James Fairfax of this uh, show. No question. You're
0: not pregnant, are you? Um, <laughs> yes. And, um, Mag- it's a food baby. Maggie's about to cook me dinner. So. Yeah, that's right. I am actually. I, I-, 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 I guess I was just going to say also that um, Maggie listens to our podcast. I never listen to them again because I edit them. And I think to- by the end, I'm like, God, I'm so boring. Shut up, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm tired of listening to my voice. So thank you for everybody who actually thinks I'm interesting. Yeah. It's a small population. All right. Okay. Bye, everybody. Well, that was me. All right. Everybody. Bye, bye, Arnie. Thank bye. you so much. And gentle listeners, we'll see you next time. See you next time!